if I got them all I hope you hear these words I ain't here to flip no birds or sip no serve Hope the future generations can get this urge Stay woke, youngin' and avenge these nerds uh. Welcome to another episode of Nerds and Rounds, guys um, This has been your boy Sebastian It's your boy Law And your boy Tone from across the hall and today we have a rock star, legend, and just an awesome um, individual who, when you get to meet her at cons, she's just, you know, one of the dopest people that you can meet at cons. And Thank she you. also kills it and everything with, um, again, with her art style and everything. I am proud to, uh, you know, get to know this woman. Um, got to interview her last year, too, for NBN Con, And she just whipped it with this Batman um, painting, which will be in the links in the description for you guys to check out. You definitely have to check out her Wednesday Lives as well when she's just again busting out her skill i want to give it up for the one the only rock star sammy castillo hello welcome sammy it's in my brain so i'm happy with that <laughs> <laughs> hello gentlemen how are you guys we're good, good we're good so i want to look again I'm, I'm happy to have you because um i you know, I could say your friend, Pierre, but also too, I geek out and fanboy of all, all your, um, your artwork and everything. Cause again, you're a phenomenal person. Um, and I'm going to skip the origin story question because a lot of the times I've known you've got those questions and everything you have it on your site. Um, and also too, we got to touch up on that last year, but I do want to touch up on the gaming and pretty much when you started gaming around 16, um, and you tried to break into the field of gaming. Um, so break it down. What was it like to decide to go into game? But then what made you change your path at that time? Um, give us a little bit about that. So um, I actually started gaming when I was a little kid. Um, I got, I was in first, I think I was in first grade and I got the NES. Um, and I had, I walked home from school by myself. That's how I got it. And my first game for that was DuckTales, and it was hard as shit, and I couldn't beat the... I got past the first level, and then that little brick level, I couldn't pass, I think it was like the second level. But after that, um, you know, I, I lost interest in it because I was doing sports, I was... Um, you know, I was doing art, stuff like that, and then again, I picked it up... Um, I picked it up actually when the PlayStation, uh, the original PlayStation came out because of Final Fantasy VII. Um, and that really got me into gaming, like hard into gaming because I had played the first one um, as much as you can when you're 10 years old with that super complex game and boring. Um, but I played that as much as I could with other games similar. And then I was watching, uh, I think I was in high school and I was watching commercials for Final Fantasy VII and it looked epic. And that was the, that was the first game I played since I was maybe, you know, 10, if that. So I just fell in love with the storytelling of it. I had never, you know, I didn't know those games existed. And at the time, so that was late 90s. I think, uh, like 90, when it came to the US on the PlayStation, I think it was like 98, 99. Um, and You're I not didn't. Date us, don't worry. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going to be 38. I've earned every one of those years. Um, but I, um, I didn't know those games existed. And that's when, like, the the initial wave of anime and and Japanese culture was coming in with through sci-fi and MTV and I had just fallen in love with the culture that pop culture it was so different um and from then on I picked up every game I possibly could that had interest to me you know Metal Gear Solid um Tekken just all all of them that had some amazing style to it and I, uh, Soul Calibur, I got the Dreamcast, I had, um, this, I got the, um, I had the Sega Dreamcast, I still have it, actually, um, I had the PlayStation 2, and so I thought I would love, because I loved playing them, I loved the puzzle solving, I loved the stories and the cinematics, I thought I would love making them, so... The first school in the country that had a bachelor's degree in video game art and design was the Art Institutes. And it is going the direction in which you think it's going to go. Um, and I went and the degree was a jack of all trades degree. 
So I didn't just learn, I didn't, I had two classes in programming, but I didn't just learn, um, you know, how to make a video game because at that point they kind of had no idea how to teach it. So I had tons of classes in yeah. film and film editing and cinematography, uh, writing, storytelling, scripting, um, digital compositing, um, um, you know, um, 2D animation, 3D animation, 3D modeling, texturing, um, how to make user interfaces, like how to design them, how the brain reacts to a user interface, how to uh, typography to make the logos, uh, graphic design to make the packaging. I literally learned at that point, and that was 2001, uh, no, 2002 to 2003. Uh, so I learned literally every aspect of how to build a game, level design, puzzle solving, puzzle creation. And I, I was getting toward the end of the degree and I realized that I, what I didn't necessarily like sitting behind a computer 40 hours a week, you know, 40 hours. And it literally at that point, there were no Cintiqs. There were no fancy anythings. It was a mouse and you click and drag vertices for 40 hours behind in a dark room. And at the time I was two, I was one of two women in a class of 30. And I, I didn't think anything of it. I was a tomboy, whatever. Then when I got into the industry, um, the person I didn't, I think the main thing for me was, um, I was full of piss and vinegar and I was a certain personality and my, my crazy and asshole didn't match their crazy and asshole. And a part of that was sort of a, a, like a, a, a misogyny that was in a male dominated industry. And I didn't love it enough to deal with that. And, you know, one of the last companies I worked with, um, you know, I, uh, that I worked in house that doesn't exist anymore, but, I, you know, in front of everybody called my boss an asshole and I got fired. So fun fact, when you call your boss an asshole, you get fired. Message to learn for everybody. Um, but I didn't love it. It was, it's a labor of love. And I was happy to have learned that I didn't love it because it's tedious. You know, I spent 40 hours on a, on a little tchotchke that you're going to see for, you know, Two and a half milliseconds. <laughs> wow, what a week. And what I wanted to do, I wasn't doing because one, I didn't want to pay my dues and go out drinking with the boys or, you know, sleep my way through it or date whoever I needed to date to get to a design position. But the other part was that I didn't have the knowledge um, to do it. And I thought I did because I had come from this school that gave me a bachelor's degree and I had all this stuff and it meant exactly fuck all in the industry uh, because it wasn't anything actionable. I had no real skills to show for it except clicking and dragging vertices. They made me a pixel monkey, basically. And I spent 70 grand on that. Woohoo. Um and I also learned that I am a creature of instant gratification. I don't want to spend, you know, I don't want to spend every single day behind a desk doing the same exact project or the same exact piece of the project. You know, one day I want to paint King Tut. The next day I want to paint some, you know, some bottles. The next day I want to draw Batman. The next day I want to do a flying monkey. And I wanted to ping pong and... Being in the gaming industry did not allow me to do that because in my opinion and in my experiences, it was the worst part of corporate America and it was the worst part of being a in-house artist. Um, and it was the worst of those two things because there was a lot of politicking and, oh, Sam didn't go to our, you know, Friday dinners so she's not going to, you know, we're not going to favor her because she's not schmoozing us. And that's how it was at the time. Now it's 15 some odd years later. I don't know if it's different, but I really don't have any interest uh, in going back into that um, to that degree. So 
That's that's sort of my love-hate relationship with the gaming industry. I love playing them. I just don't want to know anything about the companies or the people that make them so I can enjoy them. <laughs> well, that's funny when you bring up Final Fantasy VII, Law has been doing the been playing the remake on his uh Twitch channel. <laughs> yeah, I've never played Final Fantasy, oh, yeah? so I thought it was be a fun experience to have my uh chat watch me play for the first time and all they did was mess with me about it. The so the remake is everything that being a 15 year old you imagined the actual thing was. Um, except all, yes. and they added in yes. Sephiroth like a metric fuck ton because there's a whole bunch of stuff that was not well formatted and well explained because you know Final Fantasy 7 is amazing because it was, um, it was uh, revolutionary for its time. I mean, yeah, there were some epic stories being told, but not to a degree of, like, cinematics. And and not to the degree that you're going to have these crazy plot twists and stuff. Um, it The remake is a lot easier than the original, though, because I decided to replay the original before the remake came out. And I got so frustrated on that story stupid safe to get um vincent and i spent you okay to get vincent you have to do this super fast safe cracky thing within a minute and you can't go over the number or like if you go one number past then you fail and it starts this huge battle and i have no idea i spent four hours trying to get this stupid safe open i did it when i was 15 and i have no idea how i had the patience for that but i got it probably better hand-eye coordination because you know youth um but i just was like ah, i had it the last time fuck him and then i just moved on because i gave up i was like i'm just gonna finish the story because <laughs> when i played it like i played it in high school, and then I replayed it in college because my boyfriend at the time had played it to 99% or to 100%. And there was a lot of stuff I didn't even know existed, like the UFO in the bottom corner of the map and all sorts of stuff. So I replayed it in college. I'm like, ah, I remember all the crazy shit. Let's just go through this again. <laughs> but I have to say, I got a new game that knocked Final Fantasy off its pedestal of the last 20 some odd years for me being my most favorite game and it's outer worlds it's i am a huge like 50s pulp sci-fi fan which you wouldn't even notice from all the artwork that i do because i always end up doing fantasy shit and like greek gods and ninja stuff i never do sci-fi fantasy stuff uh sci-fi pulp stuff um I am a huge sci-fi pulp fan, and that just hit my wheelhouse, and it's so well done with the humor. I've played that game uh, five times completely all the way through. I played it twice with the two different endings, and then, oh no, sorry, no, I ha I'm playing it the fifth time around, so I played it once to get the good ending, once to get the really bad ending where everybody dies, and then once to get, uh, once when the first expansion came out, and then again when the second expansion, but I didn't do everything in that expansion, so I decided to restart. So I'm playing that for the fifth time. <laughs> I will put it on the list. There you go. No, it's, what's really interesting too is that, you know, you talking about like all the shit you were dealing with in the game industry, that whole misogyny aspect of it, is that you were dealing with that back when it was kind of starting because that shit's still going around with all yeah. what's going on with blizzard and activision and you're just like i'm i'm miss miss me with all that bullshit and you're kind of out of here because i kind of always yep. wanted to get myself into the gaming industry and what i found you know kind of akin to what you're saying is that it's a it's a passion project you do it for the passion you're not doing it for to make um all the money just because of everything of the, the culture that's built around it you're getting people that are like i have you have people who have these memories from playing games, cherished memories. And like, I want to dedicate my life to it. And like, cool, we're going to hook, line and sinker you because we're going to let you get the opportunity to do something that you associate to your childhood memories. And you're going to just love it. And you're going to do it. And you're not going to think anything better to want to go out and get more for yourself. Obviously, I think some studios do it a lot better than others, but it just it's been a thing I've noticed kind of watching the gaming industry on the outside and kind of just like what you're doing, just, just consuming products 
and just having fun with it. Well, the good thing is, is that, you know, back in the day, you had to be a studio artist. There was no such thing as a freelance artist when I got into the gaming industry in terms of video games. You had to be an in-house artist. Nowadays, you could freelance. I could throw my stuff out there and probably, if I put out interest, I probably would get a ton of freelance gigs. But your names don't get added in the credits because you're not a supervisor. And the whole dynamic of how they bring their employees in and stuff like that has changed quite a lot as well. Um, But the other good thing is that you know, thanks to the internet and, you know, things being so much more readily available, you don't need a studio to make a video game anymore. You can get you and a bunch of friends and get together and kickstart that and make your own indie game. I mean, I got the Switch and there's a ton of indie games that I downloaded for like, you know, four or five dollars that are awesome. They're not like, you know, epic Final Fantasy equivalents, you know, in terms of like visuals, but they are solid gameplays. And you, you know, for me, I enjoy those so much more. Like I downloaded one about how you're an asshole goose in a, in a British village (laughs) and you have to fuck with the villagers. And it was like a $20 game. And I stayed up all night. Just being a douche uh, with this, being a douchey goose, not to rhyme weirdly, but just messing with people. And it made me laugh. I was engaged. There was a really hard level of problem solving because in order, you'd get these like, you'd get these like achievements, like or not achievements, you'd get these things like, you know, um, steal the keys out of the gardener's pocket to open the gate. And it's like, okay, how am I going to do that? Steal the gardener's hat. Well, all I see him is walking around. So you have to, like, experiment with these causes and effects. And it was hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. I played that thing, like, three times. And it was so much fun. But that you could tell those developers had a lot of fun with that game. Because they threw in a bunch of silly nonsense I mean, you're a goose that's terrorizing this little vill, this British village. You know, you make the kid cry and you steal his glasses and you break them. And like, the, you see the kid cry and you laugh because you just made this little kid cry. And, but that's the whole point to me of video games. I mean, yeah, it's making the money. I mean, video games are a bigger industry now than even movies. They make, I mean, the last I checked, they made over $300 billion, yeah. you know, as an industry. And that's cool, but for me now, I think where I am as an artist, it's not about my credentials. Uh, you know, it's not about, you know, what companies I worked for anymore. And I think that's for me just, you know, being established. But now it's like, I want people to take my work and I want them to love it. And that's what I think all creators, uh, independent artists need to realize is who cares about DC? Who cares about, you know, Activision and Square Enix? And, you know, that's not where you find, you know, your love unless you have a real hard on for those, you know, being a, you know, a cog in the wheel. Um, so you can make your own game now. And I absolutely love it and support indie games all the time. You 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 built this business with um, your late great husband Tommy, and I hear great stories of Tommy, like uh, people sharing everything. Um, and again, um, we've talked a lot of shows, um, and I thank our Ash too, telling me everything, you know, that with you guys and introducing us together. Um, and again, you are a rock star. You you um, have great conversations with the fans. You are out there. You're building a business. You've built it, and you've continued to build this business, this empire. Um, what is some of the adversity that mm-hmm. you've had to get through in this industry, in this business pre-COVID and now going through COVID? Because we've had conversations and you were saying in the green room how you're studying a lot more about business, something that artists don't learn and everything. What have you done to also help yeah. your business shift during COVID and continue that path to grow your business? Um, let's see. Um, adversity in terms of pre-COVID is I'm sort of a weird case when it comes to that because I nobody knew I was an artist before my husband died and so they thought I was the booth babe and I just handled the business and in reality I was drawing and painting all along 
Which is fine. I mean, in the beginning, when we had, Tommy and I first met, we, you know, um, we, we really didn't let it out that I was an artist because I was still training with him and I was learning the ropes of how to handle this business and all the, all the nonsense that artists don't want to deal with. I, I learned. And then when Tommy got sick, I was ghost painting. So I was completing his paintings, um, because he was too sick or he couldn't see, you know, and I was still putting it out there as, excuse me, as Tommy Castillo Studios. So he still touched every piece. He still, you know, major he did at least 50% of the pieces. Um, then after the fact, um, you know, I, my biggest thing, which weirdly has changed over COVID, my biggest adversity before COVID was that people didn't believe that I did the artwork because it was not girly. I didn't draw like a girl or a woman or feminine. You know, I'm, I don't, my personality is not a feminine personality, whatever, you know, fits in the box of femininity. You know, I'm a gearhead. I can curse and make, you know, sailors blush. And, and I have a very, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, I have a very masculine energy about me, um, which is very clear from the previous part of our interview. Um, but when it came to art, I didn't draw like a girl. I wasn't trained to, uh, it, whatever came out, came out. And, you know, it's all, you know, brutal and, you know, rage filled and strong and powerful. And that is not what people typically associate with a woman as an artist. They think more sensual and they think more, you know, um, elegant and, and flowery and gentle and pastelis and butterflies and fucking rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> and that's not me. Like I draw, you know, I draw Batman pummeling someone where the, the face is gone and there's gore on his hand. Like that's what comes out or, you know, an epic Greek goddess that looks like a woman or, you know, just not what people think I should cater to and I don't cater and so before you know Tommy passed my number like uh, my number one question was oh well you know who's the artist and I was like ah oh, my husband Tommy and they look at him they look at the art and go oh okay now my number one question or before COVID my number one question was did you draw all this like they're confused like hmm not very girly or my favorite thing was that I would be painting and my assistant uh who is a male um would be standing there and he's 23 and he looked at the time he looked every bit of 23 and I'm mm, I'm literally painting something in front of them and then they would look at me painting then go to my assistant Connor and go dude your art's amazing and he's like I'm not the artist and that happened wow. a majority of the time. And it got to a point where I was getting really bitter and angry going to conventions because I knew I had to deal with that shit all the time. And it was very frustrating. Then COVID hit. And I was a completely in-person business. My five-year plan was to get me as an online business so I could lessen the amount of shows I was doing. So my five-year plan turned into a two-and-a-half-month plan. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, I have a house and a studio still, so it worked out kind of well. But what I realized, because I was on the road 30, 32 weeks out of the year, um, doing twenty anywhere between 25 to 30 shows a year. Um, and what I realized was I had, it took me about six months to realize I have no fucking idea how to be an in-studio artist. I have no idea how to be productive. If you ask me to plan out an eight-week road trip, bouncing from show to show to show, and make the logistics of getting my prints where I need them and what, what inventory I need for what show, done 100%, I don't even have to think about it. But now I'm home 24-7. And literally, this has been that... I, I was home for like a year and I think I was home for like a year and two months 
three months. And that was the longest I had been yeah. home at one time in a decade, to give you an idea. Otherwise, yeah, wow. The most I was home was dis- was like Christmas, was New Year's. Like, you know, like we would have a convention the first or second week of December that was away, you know, and then we'd be home for three weeks and then we'd have another con- go away convention in the middle of January. So at most I was home for four weeks and it was the holiday. So we didn't fucking do anything. Um, we'd go to Disney, you know? And so I had that mindset for about six months and I'm like, why am I not getting work done? How do I, how do I do this? And that prompted me to realize not only all of the good things that I had learned from, you know, my time with Tommy and working on the road, but it also showed me all of the bad things and all of the weaknesses of my business that I just didn't know because I was so busy being on the road. Like what was, what was my most popular print and how much of what percentage of sales did my most popular print make? Ah, that's a thing people know. So I realized that there was stuff about my business I should know, but I had no idea and I needed to figure it out. So I started doing, um, I started reading and doing, um, business courses, which I had always wanted to do, but again, never had time to, cause you can't, can't do homework and learn business when you're home for three days and then on the road for six. So this, this afforded me the opportunity to take all of those business courses, the productivity courses, you know, all of the, and retrain myself as an artist, um, so that I could have more of my own voice. And it also, for me personally, um, it also allowed me to step out of Tommy's shadow as an artist. Because, you know, if you can't have Tommy Castillo, the next best thing is a Sammy Castillo, which I am 100% flattered and honored to be a second to that man. But that also meant that I was, I I really didn't have an artistic voice of my own, nor did I know what it looked like. Because, I mean, I was with Tommy for a decade. We drew and painted together. So it was more our voice modeled after our studio style than it was, you know, necessarily my voice. So now I had the time to retrain myself and figure out, okay, what, what, what is my, what does my art look like now being a, you know, 36, 37 year old widow after four years. And so in terms of, of what got me over the hump of COVID was definitely the educating myself on how to be an online business and how do I market myself online? And I'm still learning. That's not something you can learn in a year. And it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of trial and error because I'm used to dealing with fans in person and that was, and I lost to, to put a percentage on it. When COVID hit and the shows disappeared, I lost 70 to 80% of my income because it was all conventions. And I realized that is terrible. Like it should not be 80%. That should not be 80%. I should be able to survive on what I bring in outside of the conventions and then the conventions are gravy. So I changed my entire business model. I mean, I, I learned how to make my own website which I hate making websites and it took me a month to do it, but now it looks awesome. And so what I face now, Oh, go ahead. You have a question. Finger up. Yes. I was going to say, by the way, your website name is awesome because you're the only person that has the best website that I've come across. (laughs) Castillostudios.ninja. Yep. Well, how that came about, how that came about was I was driving with, um, my uh, business manager at the time to San Diego and I needed a new website because it was TommyCastillo.net and I'm like, well, I'm not Tommy Castillo and I need to rebrand. And at first for the transition of the fans, it was Tommy Castillo Studios. Then when he died, it was Tommy and Sammy Castillo Studios. And then I met my current fiance, um, who will soon be my husband. Um, but he wants to be a part of the business. And I'm like, uh, that's a little awkward to make my 
new husband work for the title of my dead husband's company. So let's let's just change it to Castillo Studios, which was part of it, which was part a, a big part of why I changed it. Um, but a majority of it was that I wanted to be able to include not only my work, but not only Tommy's work, but the five year, the new five year plan is to become a third party studio where I have in house artists that are making work and I am a third party publisher. I'm putting out other people's work. And if it's Castillo Studios, that means you're now a Castillo artist, which the, the last name of Castillo in the illustration industry is quite a big and heavy name. And if the artist can hack it, they can have the ti- they can have the title of being a Castillo Studio artist. Um, so that was really the majority. But we looked up CastilloStudios.com, and that was some Christian photographer lady in Texas. Then it was like CastilloStudios.net, CastilloStudios.art, CastilloStudios.this. And I'm like, none of those struck me. And then he's like, well, you could get CastilloStudios.ninja for $10. And I'm like, done. Because I have never seen anybody with a dot .ninja. How many people do you know with a dot .ninja? So it was either dot .pirate or dot .ninja, but dot .ninja sounded better, so I went with dot .ninja. But it makes me laugh when I tell professional companies what my website is, and they're like, "Is did you just say dot .ninja? Is that accurate? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, well, it's not coming up as a valid thing. I'm like, no, no. You have to put in the whole thing because dot .ninja is not automatically recognized. And they're like, oh. And then they're like, that's awesome. It's a real website. After they see it's real, they're like, oh. I want one! You know, I wanted something fun because, you know, now I'm rebranding and it's not a longer Tommy's company. It's no longer the Tommy and Sammy company. It's now the Sammy company. And that was, I want you to look at the website. I'm like, yup, badass. And that's it. Like, you have to look at the logo with my mm-hmm. website and you know you're what you're going to get just from that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's looks, looking great. I mean, uh, I looked at, I saw the skull and it reminds, because looking, you know, looking up some of your stuff and listening to you speak, you always talked about how uh, Tommy would have you just draw a bunch of skulls all the time. Uh-huh. So it immediately made me draw uh, to that. Is is that kind of why you put the skull there or is there a different reason for it? Um, Yeah, it kind of is. Um, So the, the TC in the skull is actually Tommy's initials. And it is, a, that is originally the company logo when tommy was alive that was our company logo the t and the c um and you've probably seen it tattooed on me because it is um but um the reason i did the skull is because one that's the first uh for my students and tommy's students that's the first exercise you draw a thousand 30 second timed single source light you know single light source skulls and you 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 give it to me and if you can if you can do it then awesome and if you can't then you can't hack it um i've done i don't even know like tens of thousands of skulls at this point so that kind of was one but the other thing was i wanted the logo to represent the company and when you look at the skull you're not getting frilly frou-frou art you're getting like it's it's an art it's got the ink splat with the drip and the castillo it's a logo it's recognizable it's a three color logo and the skull stands out because here i am this you know petite blonde with big boobs that's kind of like a muppet and this is my logo so it really i wanted it to i wanted it to reflect my personality not necessarily what i look like because what I look like doesn't necessarily reflect my personality. Um, and at the time, you know, I was very angry because of Tommy. Whatever came out of me was brutal. Tommy had done a similar logo that, um, just like a sketch. And I ended up redrawing and fleshing out to the logo that you see, you see right there. So I really wanted it to be eye catching. And part of my, you know, part of my, 18 years of art was doing logos and I wanted something that would smack you in the face. And you look at that and there's no way that doesn't smack you in the face. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very dope. Very, you see it from a mile away and, you know, and as you become, when you, when you get to that published report, just seeing that logo on people's work is going to be really cool yeah. thing to see. Yeah. And that was another reason why I, I wanted to brand the logo uh, um, because 
you know, like Xerox or Apple or this or that. I wanted, I wanted to start putting the logo on everything so that people knew what they were going to get when they got the logo. And some of the older art with Tommy had it and some of it didn't. But now, you know, that is the, that's the symbol of the company. So if you see something with that logo on it, that's like a stamp of approval of badassery. I'm going to show off the logo right now for everyone to see. I'm going to apologize to our listeners, but those who are watching videos, that's the logo right there. A, a question for, for you, Sammy, in regards to the, because I'm, I'm not an artist, I'm not a drawer. So is there uh, a, a reason why, Tommy did the the skull thing and why you're moving that forward is because the complexity of skulls or working with a single light source really just or really kind of one of those things of like you're giving someone a task to do and it's to see their commitment. That's it was all of those things. Um, but mostly it was to show okay. what kind of conviction the person had. It's not easy. It's quite hard to do it. And the the way we teach we teach so when you're a student of the Castillo Studios, you know, lineage, you don't just learn how to draw better. You learn to live an art life. And you learn to, because art is a part of you. You know, I might, on one hand, I might say, yeah, that painting behind me, that King Tut behind me is just oil and fucking fabric. And who cares if it goes up in flames, I'll just do another one. So there is a certain level of emotional disconnect as a professional artist but you have to have that you can't i can't wait for my inspiration you can't have that because as an illustrator you need to be an artist on demand you know um but the other thing is that we we also Im imbue that the art is you i mean as if that goes up in flames it'll suck and that is a piece of me but mm, it is what it is i'll just redo it and i'll do it better because i did it before but you have to have a certain, as especially as an independent artist, you have to have a certain level of conviction. And one of the things we always said is you have to be an artist with courage, character, and conviction. And that thousand skull shows us the conviction of a person. Because if they can't do that, then they're not gonna, they're not gonna be able to hack anything else that comes after. Because that's an easy task compared to what you know, compared to what you, you learn after. I mean, I was dating Tommy and he was like, he made me do an art test and he was like, honey, you suck. And you gotta, you gotta start from scratch. And I did. And I was doing four times the amount of work of anybody else. Plus I was running the business, which is how I can, you know, kind of jump out of the gate with the level of a 30 year veteran. Um, but I busted my ass. You know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to become a master at anything. I mean, over the last decade, I've probably put in 20 or 30,000 hours. Um, you know, I do hour, hour and a half warm-ups. I do hour, hour and a half cool-downs. And they're all fundamentals. And that was, that was the thing that I was lacking in my college days of why I couldn't hack it as a designer. is because I had no real artistic fundamentals. That, I mean, even though it was an art school, I had two life drawing classes out of three years, you know, out of, you know, 40, 50 credit hours, I had two life drawing classes. That's not teaching you fundamentals of art. And I learned everything that I use now artistically is stuff that I learned, you know, um, through Tommy and then after in learning how to look at art and then understand how, you know, Caravaggio did his lighting. You know, um, looking up artists that I love, like, you know, Jeff Jones, um, Jeffrey Jones, uh, um, um, James Gurney, you know, who's a master at lighting. And if you want to be an artist and you don't know who James Gurney is, then fucking look it up. N.C. Wyeth, Howard Pyle, you know, all of these artists that <laughs> my direct artistic lineage comes from, um, you know, I, I learned how to observe through all of this so that I can learn, like, so that's how he did his shadowing. Oh. So, so what I teach people not only is the, you know, so, so what I, what I learned was not only, and what we teach is not only how to survive as an artist, but also how to continue your education and how to educate yourself. 
by observing and learning from the masters. Learn from where the copycats got it from. Because I can 100%, you can name me an artist, and unless it's one of the, it's a pre-Raphaelite or Albrecht Dier or, you know, somebody, I could tell you five artists, five artists before him down the line. Um, so that was, you know, I lost the, I lost the question because I tangent. Sorry. What was the question? <laughs> it's, 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 it's all, all good. good. <laughs> uh, it actually, it actually transitioned to something else. I, I okay, had, perfect. I, had I had down. I had down. Are good for yeah, there you no, go. no, it's all good. It's all good. It, you talked about <laughs> lineage and the fact that you're able to kind of uh, name someone's artists uh, back from who they learned from and their grand who they learned mm-hmm. from, I, I, which I always find fascinating in art and you see it in sciences yeah. and whatnot. And, and in your case, you, you learn from Tommy and Tommy, from what I heard from what you were saying, learned from Frank Rosetta. So do you see those things that he learned from Frank transition into your work and into what you're pushing to your students? Absolutely. Frazetta, uh, so, so Tommy did learn, you know, uh, did, you know, learn from Frazetta. But then after, you know, he learned from the gentleman that Frazetta styled himself after and the teacher of that. So N.C. Wyeth is the, is one of the best, greatest American illustrators. And he did all of the classic um, illustration stories like Robin Hood, um, Swiss, uh, not Swiss Family Robinson, um, Treasure Island. Um, and Frazetta you, modeled his style after Wyeth. And Wyeth was taught by Howard Pyle. So in some of my more stylized anatomy like him, you know, or the, the Athena behind him. There is a bit of the, uh, of the more, um, full figured woman because that's what a woman actually looks like. You know, she has a rib cage, weirdly enough, and, and hips and a waist. <laughs> Weird, right? She has thighs. I would say yes. Like when it comes to drawing guys and, and, you know, super powerful guys, but even Frazetta used, um, classic, tricks from fine artists like for instance Frazetta's guys right which N.C. Wyeth used which Howard Pyle used which came all the way back to Michelangelo being the first one to start this to show power in a man and to show they were powerful you enlarge the hands but then you make the wrist the same size as the meat of the forearm so even Frazetta even Wyeth even Pyle didn't do it originally. So it was originally done and extensively done by Michelangelo. And he first did it in the Sistine Chapel. So these tips and tricks that you see people doing. So Frazetta, in essence, I love Frazetta's work. I've learned so much from it, especially where he got his tip, his, his styles, his, his style cues from. Because Frazetta did Caravaggio lighting. Caravaggio lighting with Wyeth anatomy and Wyeth shadow blocking. And shadow blocking is where you have a character in shadow and you just block out that piece of the person um, because it's in shadow, so you lose the um, the detail because when you um, remove light, you lose detail. So in your brain, you know the person's leg is there, for instance, but you don't have to paint that in because the human brain is already putting that in. So, so... When you, when you learn where things come from, where, okay, yes, I love Frazetta's lighting. Where did Frazetta get his lighting? Okay, he got his lighting from Caravaggio. How did Caravaggio get his lighting? Okay, he got his lighting from here and here. Okay, what about the anatomy? Okay, N.C. Wyeth. But where did Wyeth get it? Howard Pyle. Okay, Howard Pyle studied with this person who was this person, which leads to the Pre-Raphaelites, which leads back to Michelangelo. So there's always a lineage to anything you do, from watercolor to drawing. And part of my education with Tommy was learning the origins. You know, don't just copy a copycat. If you're going to, like, find your voice through picking out the pieces of art that you love and then smooshing it together, and that's where your voice comes from. And funny enough, I never get asked that question, so thanks for a- asking that, because that's a fun question to answer. <laughs> is, there a way, is there a way to future-proof yourself in this career or industry? Anything as far as a wave of change or of technology or just 
uh, learning and education that you've noticed that you're like, that's something that most artists should pay attention to? Um, so a lot of artists, my problem, which I fell into is a lot of people think they have to go to college to be a good artist. And that's absolute bullshit because with the resources that we have now, um, again, 90% of what I use, I didn't learn in college. Um, did I get to learn some cool things? Sure. But that didn't warrant me being put into debt 70 grand for the rest of my life. Um, so my main, I would say that I, the thing that I notice a lot of artists is that they only know how to copy other artists and they don't, they don't know how to create their own, to trust themselves and create their own voice out of the things. Like they don't know how to make their own style. And it's something that you either organically do it. Like if you're lucky, it kind of pops out. But then you've got artists, for instance, like me, where I was painting in a studio style. Tommy's style is what I now consider the Castillo studio style. And I can do that all day long. But what does Sammy's art look like? Like, what does the Sammy voice look like? Because that's what I need to do. So after being trained in one specific area and one specific way for so long and doing that for a decade, now it's like, all right, I get to play. And I realized that I didn't really know how. Like, how does it come out again? Especially after... 10 years, you know, well, at that point, it was 15 years in the industry, 10 years, you know, with Tommy, his studio style. So I sort of had to retrain myself and figure out like, all right, what do I like? Okay, what do I like about this? Okay, okay, th I like this, the way this person drew this. What do I like about that? Well, I like the color. Okay, well, where did this person get that color from? Okay, well, they got it from here and they got this from here and this from here. So you, you have to, artists modern artists never go to the source and uh, never especially in the illustration industry they don't the reason my art and i'll say my art specifically with tommy's under my art um the reason we are so sought after is because we have fine art fundamentals we don't need photoshop to draw a character I, you, I could take a piece of paper and a pencil right now and draw you anatomy all you want. And because they, you have to learn how to think. And art is a very tactile thing. And my problem right now, which is actually funny enough going back the opposite direction from what I've seen, is that Photoshop and digital mediums was being used as a crutch because it was fast it was easy and I don't need to learn anatomy when I could go to, you know, uh, 3D, you know, uh, DAS 3D, snatch a 3D model and then throw it, screen cap it, throw into Photoshop and trace it and then adjust it from there. I don't need to know what foreshortened anatomy looks like. And so funny enough, now you see this resurgence of fine artists because the industry has been so homogenized with digital art that now companies are like, no, 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 we need fine art again. And that's where my staying power stayed. And, you know, in terms of the next step of art uh, or, or what I feel uh, artists need to do nowadays is go to their roots. Like, okay, you want to draw in a manga style. Well, why? What's the history of manga? Well, the history of manga is, literally means black and white comic. Okay, well, where did that come from? Well, that came from Japanese woodblock prints. Okay, well, who's that? You know, where did that come from? Well, are we talking about Yukioi prints? Because half of those were porn, and the other half were about monsters, and they would tell stories, and they would come out all the time. Uh, okay, well, who else did, you know? And, and there was this, there, so, like, I tell artists, I get artists coming up all the time, and I, and, they want to be a manga artist. And I'm like, that's cute. You're not going to ever be a manga artist unless you put it out yourself. Because that industry is very isolated in, well, not so much anymore, but at the time, it was very isolated to Japan. And unless you lived in Japan or were a Japanese artist, you really never got a manga. And it's like, all right, well, 
you have to learn the rules before you can break them. So if there's one thing that I can push forward into the art world is learn the fucking rules so you can break them in your own way and not the way of, you know, Hokusai or, you know, the dude that draws Naruto or the dude that drew DBZ or, you know, or, or Jim Lee, you know, or Todd McFarlane. They understood anatomy to an extent. Um, and then they broke the rules the way they wanted to. And that's how they created their styles. Um, so I guess does that sort of answer your question? <laughs> I'm getting all of these non-formula questions, and it's it's awesome. It's fun, because I always get that, what's your inspiration? Electric and fucking food for my dogs. <laughs> well, we, we're glad. You're, you, you, you talk about learning art. You talk about learning the history of art. And it's and, and even when our conversations, what you share and everything with your style. So I, I, I more of want to know what is the art? What is your favorite art medium that you like to work in? And what is your least favorite art medium that you like to work in? Which one do you feel expresses more of your style that you're building for, for um, you know, your fan base and everything? And um, so I would say my most favorite, 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 um, medium, uh, because it allows me to slap my art dick on the table and I am a bit of a narcissist and a show off, um, is watercolors is definitely watercolors because watercolors. So in terms of if you were to get a traditional fine art and when I mean traditional fine art, I mean like Way back in the Renaissance, if you were to train with an artist, the first thing you learn how to do is draw, and the second thing you would learn is watercolors. Because watercolors is the second hardest medium to learn. Uh, because you have to understand how your pigment is built to understand how it works, to understand how it's not just, I'm throwing some paint down and I can get myself up here. It's, you gotta, you gotta learn lighting. You gotta learn... You have to understand color. Like, okay, if I put red and green on top of each other and I do it wrong, you're going to get brown. Okay, but if I do it right, then you're going to get magic. Um, it's it's understanding how the water mixes in. And what 99% of people who hate watercolors and can't deal with watercolors says is that it does its own thing. They can't control it. And I'm like, that's the best fucking part. You just slap that shit down and you let it, eh, and that's it. Like, most notably, I use my watercolors on Gundam. Something that I want nitty gritty and brutal with rust and nastiness. And my Gundams are super organic because I use watercolor. Well, that and I make them look really badass because I'm awesome. But, um... That whole, that whole rust texture and, and rust te technique, um, you could pull up Burning Gundam or, or, um, uh, or Talgies. I think Talgies would probably be a better one if you're going to pull one up. And, and this is why I also like working traditionally is happy accidents. You know, as soon as he pulls it up, I'll explain to you how it happened. Um, but I am a nitty, I, I have a nitty gritty in your face style and, the, for me, I mean, I could achieve that. Um, I feel it. I achieved it the best. There it is. There you go. So originally that was just supposed to be a cool standing Gundam, but I was too impatient and I was doing the ground wash and the red leaked into the wet red of the, the boot leaked into the wet of the ground. And it looked like a, a, a reflection. So I, it looked like a wet reflection and I'm like, well, he's in the fucking rain now. So I, um, so now it was, you know, Barbatos in the rain, but all of these, I'm pointing to my screen, like you guys can see it, but all of, very Italian. <laughs> um, so like the, yeah, uh, so the, the, the sword, if you look at the sword, right, um, the sword was a wet on wet technique where I made it wet. I threw some color down and then I took another color and I slapped it in and let it do its thing. The same thing with the background. You know, I mean, look at that. It looks like a cloudy sky. Why? Because I let the watercolor do whatever it was going to do because I understood 
my medium. I understood that, okay, well, when I put this particular pigment down over this pigment, there's a thing called granulation. And that's what creates that kind of double color effect. You know, the heavier pigment sinks deeper into the paper and the lighter one sits on top. And so when you understand your medium, I mean, to any degree, you know, um, I can make watercolors. That's how much I know watercolor. Um, but that's how I, that's how you learn to paint with it. Um, in terms of my favorite, it's definitely watercolors because I don't want to control it. I want to lose control. I want to just slap some shit on there. Instant gratification. I don't want to wait for it to dry. You know why? Because I have a hair dryer. And, uh, and then, uh, and I'm done. I want to be able to slap and have emotion in it and movement and texture. Um, so in terms of what represents me as an artist the best, I think ink and watercolor, just like that, that Barbatos. Um, however, in terms of my least favorite, um, my least favorite. Ooh, that's a good question. Pastels. <laughs> Pastels are my least favorite. Only because I do it and it looks cool and then I hit chew and then it doesn't look cool. Because all the cool pigment just disappeared and I hate wasting stuff. Like and and it's messy and I like mess. Don't get me wrong, I like mess. But I don't know. I think it's because I think it's because it's a very soft medium in terms of its visual. You know, like, oh, I blend this and blend this. And I mean, you can blend in, but then you like you waste it. And it's god awful expensive. Um, but I never connected to it. I, I like um, on a on a fun, emotional, whatever sort of artistic level. I know how to do it. I can, I can probably bust it out. I mean, I can, you could put, you know, a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in front of me and I could fucking paint with that. But I just never emotionally connected with, um, with it and straight sh that and straight, um, straight, um, colored pencil. Like I use colored pencil a lot in mixed medias like in, in my, um, my paintings, but just straight colored pencil, it never appealed to me. I think it's because it's a very, to me, it's a very stiff sort of, um, uh, it's very stiff, uh, in terms of like what comes out uh, for me anyway. And from what I see on people, like there's no happy accidents, like with a paint with paint. There's no happy accidents. Um, and I really don't like having control. Like, I, when I sit at the table, it's instinct. It's all raw emotion. It's all, I feel like shit today, so you're going to get a migraine on this. And I don't, I don't need to have that level of control because of how I draw and paint instinctually, because of how I've been, I, I, you know, I've been trained. I just... I sit down, I don't think about, like, I have a point A and I got to get to point B and I don't try to imagine point B. I just, I know my goal and I, it just pops out and that's what's there. I just reveal it on the paper. Um, but a lot of people that um, need to have that control will go to those tighter controlled, um, um, tighter controlled uh, mediums. Funny enough, though, I absolutely love, which you can see by my Greek gods and goddesses, I absolutely mm -hmm. love graphite and white colored pencil. Absolutely love. And that was something I have always loved as an artist, you know, in drawing, you know, the, the classic drawing atelier and, and any any fine art was those those, you know, monochromatic drawings of Leonardo's and Michelangelo's. They had a toned piece of paper with some charcoal, you know, or Conti crayon and then some white. And, and it, it was magic. Like you looked at it and it looked like the person was about to move. And it wasn't necessarily the, the realism, like that hyper realism, you know, like that King Tut I did for my mom, you know, as a gift. And I can, I fucking hate it because my camera can fucking do that. I don't, that's boring. That's, Skill-wise, yeah, cool, but to me, it's it's boring. It just, eh, it's there. Um, but, you know, um, 
my camera can take a picture. I want the emotion. I want to like, I want to look at it and, and see the lines and the motion of the artist. You know, why did he put that line there to create that illusion of motion? Um, and that's what always appealed to me. And, uh, I never had that until this year, this past year, I, nose to the grindstone and leveled up my my anatomy and drawing um hard I was studying so I was drawing I was drawing for about 10 hours a day on my own projects and commissions and then I was training at least five hours on my own just in color technique new color techniques um fundamentals of drawing new anatomy um, gestures. I was taking new courses on gesture drawing. Um, and, and I actually, um, fun plug, I'll plug this because I think it's amazing and any professional artist should go and, and watch the, uh, you know, sign up at least for a couple of months. Um, I signed up to schoolism, which is, um, an online, like class with professional artists and I'm not talking about like hi I'm John and I danced around the industry for 12 years I'm talking about like Lucas art artists and and Disney artists and uh, teaching you techniques that they learned and I took a gesture I took two gesture drawing classes from um, a gentleman that worked on and I cannot remember his name but he did gestures for Pixar uh, and Disney animation and I learned all about, you know, stuff that I thought I knew already, but I had no idea. Um, and then there was another gentleman I learned, I learned warm up and cool down techniques, um, which most artists don't even know that they should do. They just, I mean, which is astounds me because we're athletes. We're just a different type of athlete as an artist. So artists will just sit down at the table and just expect themselves to magically create and, I'm like, that's not how it works. You should stretch first or you're going to get muscle damage from drawing like this, which I have. Uh, and then you should take breaks and stretch. And then you should do a cool down stretch. But you should also do a warm up exercise for drawing. Get that, get your brain into it. Do a brain dump. Do a 30 minute brain dump. Do an hour this, do an hour that. And then do a cool down to turn your brain off. Because if you, if you don't, if you don't, which I didn't for years. The first couple of years I was drawing, um, after Tommy died, I didn't have a cool down. I didn't have a warm up or cool down regimen, but I just would stop at 10 o'clock at night and go, okay, I'm done. And then I'd lay in bed for four hours painting all of the commissions I had to paint in my brain. And then I'd be like, well, I should have just done it because I just did it in my brain. And now I feel like I have to do it again. And that sucks. So, I mean, it's just these, these things that these workable things that, once you re like, once you're told, you're like, how did I not fucking know that as a, like, I should know these things, but it's, it's stuff that, you know, you're not taught as an artist. Even if you go to college, you're not taught those things. Those things aren't taught anymore. It's, it's a machine. Art school is a machine. They want to get you in. They want to, they want to take your money. They'll crank some information into you and then they'll kick you out the door so they can bring in the next group to get their money and kick them out the door. And, and I, I hate that so much. I hate it so, so much, which is why I teach people what I know so that they don't have to make my mistake. I wish I had somebody that told me, Sam, don't go to college. You don't need to. Don't put yourself in debt for the rest of your life. I wish I had somebody that did that. And now I'm that person for the next couple of generations. As I segue off of that. But yes, watercolor, my favorite. <laughs> and then not watercolor, um, pastels and colored pencils. More pastels, not my favorite. There you go. <laughs> I circled back around. There we go. Circle back. Go. Well, well done. Around. Well done. But um, <laughs> no, I want to because um, yeah, I, there there are a lot more questions we definitely have. But um, again, this has been a really great fun interview. I want to end with a little fun question because this is coming around Christmas and superhero movies or game movies are the craze. So I, I I just want you to have fun with this question real quickly. So let's say Santa gets kidnapped, right? Mm -hmm. He gets kidnapped by 
and you're casting this movie. So you get to pick who the big bad is that kidnapped Santa, but you get to pick right. a team of five people that get to go rescue Santa in a la carte, like suicide squad or X Force style from Deadpool. <laughs> so, I mean, give me your characters, please. <laughs> right. So who would kidnap Santa? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, who would kidnap Santa? I would go with the animated series Joker. Mark Hamill Joker would kidnap Santa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he, I think he would kidnap Santa because, uh, one, I think he'd find it hilarious. And then, two, he would likely try to replace Santa and do a, quote-unquote, better job. So, in terms of the five rescue squad, hmm... The five rescue squad. Let's see here. Um, who would rescue them? Well, hmm, that's a good question. Who are my five characters? Well, I think you can't have, I mean, you can't have a Joker story without Batman because Joker doesn't work without Batman. So I will say animated series Batman. No, 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 no. Mm, no. Mm-mm. Terry McGinnis. Batman Beyond Batman. Way better. I think he would he would head the team. Uh like unintentionally head the team. Um and then with him, um, because I'm me and you can see the studio behind me, I'm gonna say Kermit the Frog, dressed as Robin, uh, would be the assistant, would be backup. Mm-hmm. because um, you know, you gotta have you gotta have your mascot and Kermit the Frog. I don't know if you can see how many Kermit the Frogs I have, but I'm looking at six right now. Um, and that's just my background. Um, and then, so let's see, we got Terry McGinnis, and then we got Kermit dressed as uh, Robin. But, but it's the Frank Miller Robin. It's Frank Miller Robin, not, you know, like, you know, um, regular Dick Grayson Robin. Um, let's see. Uh... And then I have three more characters, yeah? So we need a badass babe. Hmm, who would our badass babe be? Oh, I don't remember her name, but she was in... She is a comic character, and I cannot remember her name. Atomic Blonde. I can't remember that character's name, but Atomic Blonde. She'd be the enforcer. And that's actually a comic, if you guys did not know. That's actually a comic. Um, and then I would probably have to say just for fun on the superhero team to try and rescue with misguidedness, I would probably put Homelander as my Superman character, uh, because, you know, he'd try to muscle in and take all the credit. So we'll go with Homelander on that one. Um, and I have one more. You know what? I think, I think we're going to, we're going to end it with, uh, with, with one of them with a Mars attacks alien as well. Because, you know, if if Joker is going to get rid of Santa, right, we do need an intergalactic aspect. So one of the, ah, ah, you know, aliens, um, I think would be spot on uh, with with rounding out my my superhero team that has one superhero and a fucking frog. (laughs) That's a pretty good team. I'm glad I saved that question for you. I'm glad it's coming out. And I thank you for this. I thank you for coming on, Sammy, and sharing everything oh, so with welcome. us. Again, um, guys, this has been another great episode of Nerds Around. Check out all the links that we have there. Follow Sammy Castillo. Check out Castillo um, Studios and everything that we have there. The, the live drawings that she did, her live Twitch channel, um, the Inbeyond panels that she has been on. We're going to have all those links for you guys there. So make sure you check them out. And make sure you check out all the interviews that she's been on. And again, this has been your boy, Sebastian. It's your boy, Law. Your boy, Tone from across the hall. 